Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Our guest today is Ryan Grineski. Uh, Ryan is a writer with the American Conservative Magazine, and he's also the co-author, along with Harlan Hill, of They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created the National Populist Revolution, which is going to be the subject of today's conversation. So, Ryan, welcome to the Urbane Cowboys. Thank you guys for having me on. So, let maybe, uh, since we're going to start with your book, uh, let you the obvious question is, what is the book about? It's about national populist, the national populist revolution and elites or whatever, but give us the kind of, uh, the the sum up. Sure. So when the election in 2016 happened, I was at the Washington Examiner and I was the sole Trump supporter in the building. And at the time, national, uh, not national view, rather. um, I guess the janitor was for Trump. The Weekly Standard was there. He was there in the general, but in the primary, I promise you, I was I was the only <laughs> outspoken one. I'll tell you that it was a very lonely experience, yeah, and a yeah, lot of okay, like the janitorial staff, uh, you know, maybe the security guard. They were probably for Trump, probably because that's the voters he attracted. But it was very much like oh, you know, one crazy New Yorker defending another crazy New Yorker. Um, but they did not think that anything was real that I was saying. And um, after he won, I sat there and said, oh, okay, everything's going to change now. Voices like mine are going to ascend in the media and in conservative media and in the Republican Party. And we were right about everything. And the opposite happened, where we were very much suppressed or fired. Uh, you know, mainstream media outlets, we have a whole chapter in the book about the media. Mainstream media outlets all hired a token conservative basically after the election to add diversity. Um, and they were all never Trumpers across the board. They were everyone who got everything wrong. And base and a lot of what the media came out with after the election was this is a reaction of old, angry white people in the Midwest and in dying towns. They're all losers and they're going to die in a generation. So let's not even bother listening to them. And we will continue with our great neoliberal project as planned. Um, and and it was all very contextualized in the idea that this was a snapshot, angry uh, you know, reaction to the racial changes made above the United States. So what I did was I wrote an article for the American Conservative magazine back in 20, I guess it was 20, 2018 now, 2018, um, saying this is the rise of national populism chronologically. So in starting in the late 90s with the election of Viktor Orban in Hungary, I mean, Viktor Orban's been in office now for for quite some time, uh, you know, uh, for several decades, I think he had like a he had a little gap between where he was and in power. But besides that, he's been in power since 1998. Um, the election of the Swiss People's Party in Switzerland in 99, uh, the Danish People's Party in 2001, and then also non-Western governments, the rise of the anti-illegal immigration movement in Angola and Africa, the rise of the Conservative Party in Chile and in Colombia, the Populist Party in Colombia, the Democratic Center Party. Bolsonaro, Australia, um, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, uh, Modi in in India, and why and how all of these cultures and all these countries and all these people that are very different racially, um, religiously, demographically, they all seemingly have different interests, are all moving towards parties and people and candidates who are fighting against the neoliberal orthodoxy created after the Cold War. Why has that failed? And why are the people who hate Trump the most, the people are those who are responsible for his rise and the rise of national populism? And that's what the book dissects. Yeah. So one of the things I liked about your book is that it does take an international perspective on things. I know, uh, Americans, we tend to be uh, a little aggressively <laughs> self-centered, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Which you know, it has it has its good and bad elements. Uh, but I know after the 2016 election, 
there were all sorts of theories about, you know, trying to explain the Trump win. And a lot of them were very uh, specific to the United States, which is fine. But as you note, you have, if you have a similar phenomenon going on in a bunch of different places all over the world uh, at the same time, and also predating Trump's ride down the, the escalator in 2015, there's probably something bigger going on. So what, Right. What and that's what I think that they were missing. And also, I'm one of the few, Harlan and I are one of the few writers who wrote a book who actually supported the president. I mean, and I mean, really supported the president. I'm not talking about grifted off of him when it was profitable or um, wrote like an analysis from a left wing journalism standpoint, but actually was vocal supporters. I supported him the day he came down the escalator. The day he came down the escalator, I walked into my office with the examiner and said, he is our nominee. There was never a flinching moment. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not, you know, medium or anything like that, or, or somebody who has such forward thinking, but I remember being eight years old and telling my parents, Oh, you should support Ross Perot. I've had like populism in my bloodstream basically since the beginning, <laughs> but I have supported Ron Paul in 08 and, and Buchanan has always been like a hero of mine. So this is something I've really, this is really part of my identity as, as a person um, much so more so then and i'm not going to name names unless you want me to but um but much so more so than a lot of the johnny come latelys who are trying to sell trump t-shirts or buttons and you know saying hashtag maga and cag that's not really what i'm interested in i'm really interested in the movement of working people across the country to defy to defy and to overthrow really the neoliberal consensus that was created for the cold war. Yeah, it is interesting. I suspect that if you were to, if the, if the election had just been restricted to the political appointees of the Trump administration, uh, I don't think Trump would have won. (laughs) No, of course they probably didn't vote for him. Yeah. Maybe that's uh, kind of a source of, my friend Ann Coulter always says she would love to do a um, a what did she say she says she wants a lie detector to sit in the White House and just ask them did you vote for Trump like she's like that's my dream job is to ask everyone to vote if they voted for Trump right yeah yeah um, uh, well and that's and that's something I want to talk about a little bit later is some of the uh, personnel issues and the kind of practice of the Trump administration as opposed to the rhetoric of it because there doesn't necessarily seem to be a, a, a total uh, congruity there. But um, let's just go back. Let's talk a little bit about big picture. You know, um, there's been a lot, there's been a lot of talk about elites um, and kind of the, the elites versus uh, populism. And my perspective is, you know, as I, as I study history, I look at history there's never been a society that hasn't been run by elites, right? Uh, you know, maybe like a hunter-gatherer band or something. Um, but uh, elites can be of different quality. Um, and, you know, in, in China, they have this thing called, the, the, in the, during the pre-commie days of China, uh, there's a thing called the Mandate of Heaven, right? Where if you governed badly, you lost the Mandate of Heaven, and then the people came and replaced you with someone else. So what are the what are the failures of the elites that have given rise to nationalism and populism globally over the over the Right, I want to push back against what you said for a second. Okay. So yes, there are there's always been elites running governments around the world. That is absolutely true. That is not nothing what you said was wrong. However, even in as recently as the Kennedy and Eisenhower presidency, you had secretaries of state and uh, cabinet positions from people who spent a majority of their life as members of the working class. I believe one of Kennedy's um, cabinet members' father like sold fruit in a wagon. There was an enormous gravity of people who, and that was called Harvard on the Potomac, 
there was still a large population of people in high level positions of our government who uh, you know, went to community college. I mean, Ronald Reagan, for crying out loud, did not go to a fantastically, didn't go to, you know, a, an Ivy League school. Uh, that's, I mean, and that's not that far. And as we point out in the book, there used to be something like eight times more members of the British Parliament whose job was to um, either be a farmer or a miner than it was to be a professional politician. Now, I think it's like 35 times more likely to be nothing besides a professional politician than to ever been a farmer or a miner. Um, that is not to say that that's you know how our government should be completely made up, but the voice of the working class has diminished substantially. The number of people who in our own government right now who make a, who spent a majority of their life as members of the working class make up 4% of state legislators and 2% of congressmen. I've spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C. I have never met a Hill staffer who does not have a college degree before, let alone a congressman. I've never met a Hill staffer who doesn't have a college degree. That does not, that a college degree does not make your worth. And it does, but it does oftentimes create your perspective on things. So the perspective of people has certainly the worldview that is being considered when policy is being crafted has diminished substantially in our country. That is extremely problematic. So things that the neoliberals believed in, like free trade, is not, not only is it desirable, but it's always good and has few to to few to any drawbacks is not even considered that is that is orthodoxy it is can never be questioned um pre-trump um the idea that um immigration diversity is a strength that might as well be in our constitution at this point that's how often i'm freaking hearing about it we can never even have a conversation is it really can we talk about this uh, having a foreign policy where we have 600 bases around the world and we have military obligations with dozens of countries that most Americans cannot find on a map and the children of Iowa have to die for the borders of Latvia is not considered. We cannot have that conversation. It is a part of our orthodoxy. So what are we left to talk about? The capital gains tax or, or uh, you know, what someone said on late night television. That's what our debatable arguments are. And that doesn't work for most people. But after the late after the end of the Cold War, that is the belief that that the ruling elite had. It was Francis Fukuyama's end of history. No, this is the way the world's going to approach forever. So it didn't matter if it was a Republican president or a Democrat president. And the most um, the most easily encapsulating point about this is the military. George H.W. Bush campaigned on reducing the size of the military after the Cold War, bringing some troops home and spending more money domestically. He did he did cut the spending, but he never ended up. There was no peace dividends. Bill Clinton attacked him for it, ran on it, won it, also brought home no peace dividends. He cut the size of the military a little bit, but at the same time allowed mass conglomerations of the military industrial complex. So then you have George W. Bush, who campaigns on a humble foreign policy. Obviously, we all know how that went. I mean, even if 9-11 had never happened, he still had Paul Wolfowitz and Dick Cheney advising him or as um, and I, you can bleep me, but as Colin Powell called him the fucking crazies uh, running the White House. Then you had Obama, who was the prince of peace, and he's overturning Libya and the Syrian government. It didn't matter who the policy was. You have 20 some odd years of Americans voting for the same thing. But the consensus in D.C. was, no, that's not acceptable. We have our own agenda. And that is why they utterly fail the American people. And that's why they said, I don't really care if Donald Trump has a weird haircut and says really crazy things. And they all say that he's nuts or that he's got dementia or that he's in love with his daughter. I don't care. Or he's not really a billionaire. I don't care what they say about him. What's happening isn't working. And Hillary Clinton have to be the perfect personification of neoliberalism in the 2016 election. Yeah, so let, let's talk about some of the kind of um, crevices between the old, what, what you call the, the neoliberal orthodoxy or kind of the old way of looking thing, at things and the nationalist populist way of looking things. I should say, as you point out in the book, 
nationalism and populism are technically two different things. Uh, tend to be associated right now. Right. But they uh, they can be different, and certainly there there have been plenty of um, uh, left wing populists. Uh, yeah, of course. Bernie, Bernie Sanders is a left wing populist. Yeah. Uh, although interestingly, uh, I think at least um, the pre-presidential run Bernie, um, though he d- definitely a very left-wing guy, uh, tended to be more skeptical of uh, trade and immigration. Yeah, um, because he was a populist and because he wasn't woke yet. Wokeism killed a lot of left-wing populism and economics. They kind of all of a sudden forgot that you can't have a welfare state, a healthy welfare state and open borders because open borders became part of their indoctrination platform. You had to drop that point. Yeah. So in the, in the book, you have chapters on kind of focusing on uh, different hinge points. So you got, you've got one about uh, distrust of the media, one about mm-hmm. foreign policy, a couple about terrorism, uh, and then uh, there's, uh, I mean, excuse me, a couple about immigration, terrorism, and then uh, just kind of uh, economic inequality. Yeah, and um, sovereignty. So maybe, yeah, and sovereignty. Right. Yeah. Uh, so maybe we could just like hit some of those. Um, sure. We, we touched on the, the foreign policy stuff already, but uh, let's talk about immigration because that's obviously was kind of Trump's signature issue. It's been... Uh, kind of in the background or foreground of a lot of the different nationalist populist movements across the world. And it tends to be very controversial, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, the people who like Trump, you know, if you ask them why it is, that's going to be probably one of the top reasons they give you is immigration. And uh, if you ask people why they don't like Trump, one of the top reasons is going to be, well, he's a racist uh, and a xenophobe and that the immigration stuff is going to be one of the, the key pieces of, of evidence, right. Statements and things related to that. So, so what is like, <clears throat> why is that, how did that become such a preeminent issue uh, in, in the political landscape for people? Well, why was because we had in 1965 when LBJ and Teddy Kennedy kicked open the doors to our current immigration system, what they did was they promised the American public this is not going to fundamentally alter the demographics of the United States. I think even at one point they said it's never going to, Asians will never make up one or two percent of the U.S. population if we change this. Um, uh, They had made all these promises that never came true. And I think now we have 47 million um, people in this country who were not born here. It's the high, it's the largest number on record. And I think it's tied for the greatest percentage on record. It's equal equivalent to that of the great migration of the 19th century. Um, and that is not a healthy society having mass immigration, diversity and mass immigration. And this has been studied by many, many, many sociologists. They're all cited throughout the book creates the decline of social capital. Mass diversity and mass immigration makes people less likely to trust other people and less likely to invest their time and their money and their efforts in the public good. And the least trusting generation right now are Generation Z, which is also the most diverse, but that's for many reasons, not just immigration. Um, but it is, it is, it is, it's, it's a major culprit in that. Um, and there are many different things that immigration um, contributes to, obviously. There's culture, which everyone, people, everyone loves having different choices to go out to dinner and have food or listen to different kinds of music. But it goes larger than that. It's the decline of, of native cultures, whether they be white or black um, in America, in the American context. Um, it's the economic rep- repercussions of, of displacing low-skilled Americans. It is the crime aspect. Immigrants bring certain crimes with them. And it is the political aspect as well. Uh, Donald Trump, according to the CNN exit polls, Donald Trump won a plurality of votes by people who were born in this country. Where he lo- Why he lost the popular vote was because not, uh, foreign-born Americans voted two to one for Hillary Clinton. 
that made up the difference that changed changed the that could have changed the course of history um, because we because we brought in enough Democrats we imported Democrats into our country that turned states blue. Um, uh, there was one sociologist who said the thing that immigrants bring more than anything else is themselves, and that is very complex. And when you bring in forty-seven million people in a period of 30 or 40 years, uh, you're going to change the nation. And a nation can come back from a losing a war. A nation can come back from an economic um, devastating depression. A nation can never come back from a bad immigration policy. And by 2016, the number of people in this country who said that they felt like strangers in their own country was... Um, the highest it had been in polling records. The, and that's what that's the same things you see in places like Israel and Italy, um, where they have similar uh, issues of immigration, where they sit there and say, I don't feel, I feel like I'm a stranger in my hometown. And we give up the example, which is a well-known example at this point, especially from immigration hawks, is Hazleton, Pennsylvania. Hazleton, Pennsylvania was a 99% or 98% white city in Pennsylvania since basically its creation. And from 2000 to 2020, that's a 20-year perspective. It went from super majority white, almost, almost completely white, to being majority Latino. So if you are a, you know, if you're a 40 year old and you put down roots there, by the time you're in your 60s, you may not hear people speak the language, you know, you may not hear music you're, uh, you understand, you may not feel comfortable or safe or trustworthy, and you may feel isolated and alone. And that has happened throughout our entire country. That's not to say all immigration is bad, or there's no good immigrants, or that we can't have a functioning immigration policy, we can do all of those things. And we have tried several leaders, you know, from Barbara Jordan, onward have sat there and said we need a more coherent immigration policy that works for working class people but that's not the interest of people in washington the interest of people in washington is what is good for my donors what is going to turn the most states democrat forever and make every state california and what is good for the bottom line of of, of mass immigration and these and these uh and the sycophants who run the activist portion of the democrat party that's that is there. That is what's what's the question? And the question is never what is good for people who are born here and what is best for those weakest among us, those most likely to be affected by mass immigration, including recent immigrants, mind you. I, so it strikes me that there is a strange connection between uh Conservatives are right of center people who are very uh, hawkish or in favor of uh, spreading, uh, you know, nation building, spreading democracy abroad, muscular foreign policy, and people who are, uh, when it comes to immigration, very much on the on the liberal side, right? They they want. Uh, you know, uh, lots of people to be able to immigrate here, uh, so on and so forth. I mean, you see that with uh, John McCain, right, might be the classic example of that, or Bill Kristol, right? Right. Uh, what's the, do you think that there's a, I mean, is that just a coincidence? I know it's not a universal, but is there something in those two philosophies that you think fits together? The I two philosophies like, I being understand. pro- being being invite the world fight the world yeah right like the kind of the 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 uh the the opposite of pat buchanan right right i understand the i understand the pat buchanan view that makes sense it's kind of like a fortress america what happens in other countries you don't necessarily care care about and you know uh you've got your own people and you want to focus on that but um, is there is there a kind of connection between those things on the flip side, or is that just kind of? Um, I think that yeah, I think that um, they're just their view, their orthodoxy, and it is an elitist orthodoxy is that it is more important that that um, that the neoliberal orthodoxy sits there and says that Amer on on foreign policy is that the 
idea of Western liberalism is amend is is agreeable with human nature, and so it is exportable either through trade, like with China, where they opened up markets to China and they said, oh, they'll be liberal like us if we just, you know, teach them the wonders of cheap televisions or through war in the sense of, hey, let's overthrow Gaddafi and Libya will be like Tennessee in six weeks. Um, and then they have also this kind of weird belief that America has this magic dirt that um, we are impossible to um that 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 it, that it is impossible to um to that we will have a balkanization or a situation where um where you know there'll be racial or ethnic conflicts like we've seen in other countries and that everyone just simply becomes american overnight that is in part because they don't live anywhere close to the areas that are affected, you know, like take George will who very much has that opinion. George will lives in a neighborhood in Maryland where I think the average home costs like $1.3 million and is 98% white. I mean, some portions of the elite parts of this country are very much, they live like it's the 1950s in their areas. Their kids are not going to have to worry about, you know, getting gunned down by a rival gang. Um, but in the 2016 election, a story that I reported on that happened right before, either right before or right after Trump's victory, I forget. There was a because because you know a lot of this is 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 viewed from the opinion of white versus non-white when it in fact is much more complex than that. Um, if you look at what has happened in Southern California over the years and the number of gangs making up many of them illegal immigrants, but if not illegal immigrants, the children of legal immigrants um, in Southern California who have warred with the black community of Southern California. Um, Compton, which was brought us West Coast rap, you know, whether that's something you are interested in listening to or not, it doesn't matter. It brought us a part of American culture out of a certain American experience is now almost exclusively Hispanic. Maxine Waters will probably be the last black representative to ever represent that neighborhood. Um, uh, there was a situation, I forget, it was the 8th Street gang. Certain Hispanic gang had like a day where they said shoot any black day. And right before, right after Trump's victory, I forget which one it was, there was a situation where you had Hispanic gangs. They were spying and targeting black neighborhoods, but not only black neighborhoods, they were looking, they were, they were, they were keeping track of where black children slept in bedrooms. And then one night started throwing Molotov cocktails into the bedrooms of sleeping black children in South and Southern California. And this story was picked up by the LA times. I wrote about it and no one else did, but George will doesn't have to fear about his child getting a Molotov cocktail thrown through his window. Neither does bill crystal. Neither do any of these people who love to wrap themselves in American greatness and the flag and dead veterans and everyone who has to make a sacrifice for their glorious vision. So they can hate Donald Trump all they want, but they very much created the situation that gave Rose rise to him. And that's what the book details. Yeah, so uh, I want to. There's a lot in there. Um, <laughs> there always is. <laughs> you have to come <laughs> me off of a rant. <laughs> um, I, I am interested. You know, I was looking at um, some uh, polling earlier today, and one of the interesting phenomena I think about the Trump era is that. You know, if you were to if you were to just base uh, things on general media coverage, right, and their perspective on things, you would kind of think that the big difference between Trump and the pre-Trump Republican Party uh, has to do with race, right? That Trump has uh, really racialized things tried to turn the party into kind of like a white nationalist party or whatever. Um, yeah, whereas, because it was so diverse under John McCain when he got 6% of the black vote. Right. Well, well, that's, uh, there, there is that, but it, it is also the case that uh, Trump, I mean, it, it, 
according to the exit polls, uh, Trump did better among his, uh, he did about the same among Hispanics as Mitt Romney and better among uh, African-Americans. Some of that might have had to do with Barack Obama not being on the ballot, but the polling now seems to indicate that Trump's support among Hispanics and perhaps among African-Americans has increased since 2016. Uh, He's lost support uh, among, I guess, uh, the white suburbs, I guess is what they say. Um, And I know, I think, you know, just to give a little little bit from my own personal life, uh, my kids are not going to school right now, but because of... uh, the plague, but, um, uh, they used to go to the local parochial school, uh, which is about 70% Hispanic, I would say. Right. And, uh, I, you know, I'm just one person, but my perspective is I thought that was great. Uh, uh, I, I really liked the school. And what I always tell people is, you know, uh, I, I, I'm not worried about, um, Hispanic or black students at my school, the reason I'm paying to have my kid go there is because I'm worried about white liberals. Uh, right. And I also see, you know, we have, of course, over the last several months seen a uh, crazy outpouring of civil unrest, riots, violence, police, uh, Stations, businesses burned down, uh, autonomous zones created, uh, and while of course that has been a multiracial affair, um, many people have noted that a lot of the instigators, uh, or worst actors of this, tend to be uh, younger white people, right? At least you know if you yeah, the children of the bourgeoisie, right? Um, so I wonder, like, how much of this is, you know, whatever the broader issues of immigration, CJ, isn't, isn't the big problem uh, just kind of an almost homegrown ideology, the, this woke stuff, this uh, left-wing radicalism, which, uh, you know, uh, is a very, is a very um, white-created phenomenon. Right? Well, no, not. it's not a white creative phenomenon. That part is not true. It is it is embraced by white liberals for sure. And it is the religion of white liberals for sure. All you have to do is after the George Floyd shooting, watch them mimic religious iconography where they basically canonized him. They were washing of the feet. They were kneeling. They were doing religious iconography towards woke racialism and it is a religion of white liberals white liberals are more woke on race issues than any other race in this country yes that is true but um this is something that is not unique to america the american experience or um or um you know just white liberals this is the reason like hugo chavez was democratically elected in venezuela which is something the right wingers always like to sit there and forget about was because he told non-whites which were a majority of the country but a minority of the ruling class he sat there and said they fear me because i look like you they fear me because i'm i'm i have nappy hair i think is what he said and a big nose and so he used race And he used um, the tools of racism to sit there and 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 of um, identity politics to sit there and elevate himself and become the leader of a nation, which at the time was, I think, the richest nation in South America and is now poor forever. And what do we see on the left right now? Joe Biden had to pick a black woman. He had he had to. There was no way about it. He had to pick a black woman. We hear endlessly about the conversation of is there proportional democratic representation in every institution in this country or is there overrepresentation in the case of arrest policing and incarceration and unless it seems to have to mimic the exact portion of what the american democratic uh, Demo- uh, american um uh, population is well then it's an unfair and unjust system especially and basically only when it accounts to overrepresentations of either asians or whites 
not when it's an overrepresentation of blacks and Hispanics, as in the case of the NBA or most major soccer teams. Um, that is that is what our conversation is. So, yeah. Is it is it more fearful that white liberals are using it? Yes, because it is a religion to them and they are sycophantic about it. But it is absolutely as bad with non-white liberals because it can be used as a tool to gain political power. What do we see in California all the time now in California and in New York City, mind you, where I live and I've been born and raised and spent my entire life in New York City? When you have a Democrat primary, you can see the Asian neighborhoods going for the Asian candidate, the black neighborhoods going for the black candidate and usually the labor candidate winning the working white areas. And it splits and divides over racial and ethnic issues. Same thing in California now for statewide elections. So uh, America doesn't have a magic dirt. We can absolutely suffer from balkanization and mass immigration and division. None of that we are immune to. No nation is. And we are uh, we be idiots to sit there and do it. And it's easy to blame white liberals because they are so easily hateable. But never underestimate the fact that everyone can sit there and look out for their own interests and say, I am feel like I am being screwed by the system and my people are being screwed by the system. So I must have better representation and more people like me. Look at the statistics right now with the Black Lives Matter movement. Black incarceration is down 30% in 30 years. Black graduation rate is up. Black single motherhood, or sorry, teenage motherhood is significantly down from the 90s. The killing and shooting at unarmed black um, men by the police is down uh, uh, by 80%. It's like in five years. Every single statistic was going in the correct direction. Um, even wages were going up under President Trump. And yet none of that mattered. None of that mattered because you could just have, uh, you know, leaders sit there and say, no, you're being screwed. The system isn't fair. Look at this one example. I can name probably now, and I'm not a, an activist in the Black Lives Matter movement. I can name probably five black people who were killed by the police that they're sitting and rallying for justice by. I bet you most people can't name five unarmed white people who were killed by the police. They don't, can't name the statistics behind it. They can't name the numbers behind it. They can't go into any detail behind it, but it doesn't matter because it becomes mob mentality and that's all that and all that matters. So it is easy to hate white liberals and to blame them and they should get a lot of blame and they are very much hateable and the cause of a lot of problems. And I hope that their religiosity towards um, uh, towards uh, this entire racial mo moment uh, brings them scorn and makes them lose elections and everything else. But judging by the elections we're seeing right now with the DSA, uh, the DSA is not winning elections in the suburbs of Philadelphia or in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. They're winning them in the inner cities. They're winning them in Minneapolis and in New York and in St. Louis. They're winning them in the minority communities because they're telling them constantly, no, we have racial injustice and we need to get our fair share because you're being screwed because of your race. That is very, very, very dangerous. And we on the right, because we're so f afraid to speak about race unless we're attacking white liberals, have not even yet unpacked that situation and how it's going to, you know, lead into the future. It is, I haven't read your book, so I don't want to be unfair. That's in, right, Doug, you in, jump in too. <laughs> well... <laughs> But it, 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 I, I hear you talking about the grievances on the left and the, I guess, the progressive elites telling uh, presumably minorities that they have grievances that they should be airing. But it sounds to me that you're essentially saying from a nativist point of view that native born Americans also have their spate of grievances and they should be doing something about it and they should be airing their grievances as well. Do I have a, am I misreading what you're, what you're saying? Well, it's not a matter of grievances. It's a matter of the, uh, it's a matter of the fact that the American government is set up to protect, represent, and bring out the best interests of the American people. That is what every government is essentially there to do. We are not the, a soup kitchen for the world. We're not the world's policemen. We're not the world's charity. We are an organization set up to protect, defend the interests of the American people. We, however, do not have 
uh, a functioning government that is set up to do that anymore. And you could sit there and look at the deaths of despair of working class people and the decline in, in life expectancy of working class people and sit there and say, that's really strange. Why is that happening? Why are we sitting there and why in the richest country in the history of the world that has, you know, the cheapest televisions and the most amount of channels and everything else, why is life expectancy declining? Why, if you are born white in the in Appalachia or black in the Mississippi Delta or Native American in South Dakota, why are you expected to die 20 years sooner than someone born in the suburbs of Denver, Colorado? All I'm saying, I'm not talking about nativists or grievance policies. I'm saying the government of the United States should be set up for the interests of the people who live in their country, period. But for some reason, we constantly have to have conversations about, well, refugee resettlement. What, let's worry about the, you know, the children in Somalia who won't get to go to Maine now. Let's talk about how, you know, oh, we're, you know, the, the if we sit there and we don't get don't get work with the Chinese government. We're gonna we're gonna lose our business interests to India. What does it matter? What is in the best interest of the people living in this country right now? And on foreign policy, on economic policy, and on immigration policy specifically, the government has failed its people for thirty consecutive years, and that is why Donald Trump was elected president in twenty sixteen. So. What, what is it going to say about Donald Trump then? And I guess the thesis of your book, if if he's defeated, as polls would indicate at the moment. Right. If he's defeated and doesn't win the popular vote again, what, what does that say about Donald Trump and whether he's a voice of the people if, in fact... The people vote and they vote against the Trump movement. Right. Well, this book is not I mean, and I know you didn't read it, so I'm not blaming you, but the book is about more than Donald Trump. It is about the rise of these people on a global perspective. And Donald Trump, I believe on a gut instinct, understands this better than anybody else, understands the national populist movement better than anybody else, um, especially in American politics right now. He is not a perfect um, example of it. He is certainly not governed as a perfect example of it. And the Republican Party does not have many leaders who can exemplify its movement. Many people have, I always say like the Trump movement or the, or the MAG movement was a puzzle and people have grabbed at pieces of the puzzle, but they don't have the whole puzzle yet. So like Marco Rubio said some great things in economics, Chip Roy on immigration, uh, you know, Jim Banks on China, but they haven't yet grabbed the entire full puzzle yet that make it what the movement is and what it stands for. Um, what I think the problem with Trump is, is that, I mean, Trump is, you know, elections about more than ideas. Unfortunately, they are. And maybe we would have a better country if they were only about ideas, but a lot of it's on personality and a lot of it's on um, a lot of it's on the moment. And I think that Trump and his presidency has had many, many failures um, in part and in a large part because he filled his entire presidency in his office with neoliberals, people who hate him. They never liked him. They would never they hate his voters. They think they're trailer park trash and that they could throw him away. Who, and who would and, those neoliberals be? Just oh just god, typical. let's sit down and grab we, a pen of Peter, paper. Pe- well, <laughs> I mean, well, for instance, there's Peter Navarro, there's John Bolton. Who's who are the who well, are the John neoliberals? John Bolton was a neoliberal, obviously. Jared Kushner's a late neoliberal. Uh, John Bolton's Jen- an, obviously a neoliberal. Yeah, of course, John Bolton. John Bolton believes in bombing the entire world and flooding them with their flooding our own country with their refugees. Why is he would, would not be a neoliberal? He's not an America first patriot at all. John Bolton has never saw a war he disagreed with. Um, but you have John Bolton, General Kelly, for sure, Kirsten Nielsen, almost everybody at DHS. Um, you know, it's so funny. Like back in 2019, April 2019, I tweeted a list of the biggest never Trumpers at DHS. And one of them just came out endorsing uh, Joe Biden, Miles Taylor, um, who was an Obama donor. Um, Nikki Haley, huge neoliberal neocon, just the worst of the worst. Um, she's not there anymore. Um, but she was certainly there. Uh, Johnny DiStefano, Reince Priebus. Um, I mean, you want to go through the list. 
it'd be easier to name the people who weren't than who were. And part of the if, problem if, is that national populists don't have institutions to fill the office of the of the White House the way that they should have when it started out. And that was part of the problem with with his with his ascension. So we recently had on uh, J.D. Vance on the show, and I asked him about sort of the similar conversation about the the coalition, if you will. So if part of the conversation is that the we have zombie Reaganism and the post-Cold War neoliberal conservative libertarian fusionism is dead and we're going to drive out the libertarians, we're going to drive out all the fusionists and all the the neocons. Where do you see your majority party, nationalist party, sort of Jacksonian Republicans, where do you see that coalition coming from and how do you sell a majority of the American people across the country on that vision and what's that coalition look like? Well, obviously, um, working class whites would be a big background to it. And also, but I think working class people of all stripes, I think that working class Hispanics, I think the reason that they are gravitating towards Donald Trump, the reason he's seen, he's probably going to get close to 40% of the Hispanic vote in this election if he doesn't get 40% of the Hispanic vote. And that is on no issue other than the fact that they want to see wages rise. You know, the big lie and the big myth of the Republican Party was all they care about is amnesty and they don't actually care about amnesty. And the more they Americanize with every generation, the less they care so much about um, the issue of immigration, unless they're tied to immigration. Um, But working class people of all races and stripes make up the base of that. And then I think that what you speak to when you speak to um, uh, um people who are not necessarily the working class, which are 50% of the population, um, at minimum, people without um, the working class. I think that you sit there and you speak to um, typical Republican voters who care immensely about the managerial decline of the United States as a country, which is what the center, uh, which is what the the doctrine of of, of leaders have been for for generations is how do we manage to decline i think you know donald trump what you hear from a lot of people who can't vote for him is i like his policies but i hate his mouth maybe if we had somebody who didn't sit there and feel the need to to speak the way he does you probably would be attracting a lot more um women and a lot more um younger people um uh you know, and also I think the biggest thing and the thing that people forget the most is the biggest block of voters in this country are non-voters. And there was a New York Times article recently, and I think there was an article also in the Atlantic, but I read the Times article where it showed the percentage of people who are non-white and who are young who approve of Trump is significantly higher among non-voters than it is of voters. There are also 40 million non-college educated. This is from Nate Silver, 538. 40, I think 44, 42 million non-college educated white Americans who are not even registered to vote. So I think that the base is out there. They're just totally untapped. And rather than having, I don't know, contributing $35 million to grifter organizations that think of slogans like, I don't know, on a totally hypothetical uh, slogan like socialism sucks, we could be sitting there and actually trying to make the party appeal to working class people who have fundamentally given up on their country. They just don't so, believe that anyone can represent them. So define, define what, a, define what the working class is. I'm interested in that. Uh, very specifically one, definitely uh, non-college degree holders is a big, big portion of them. Um, voters who make under probably $74,000 a year. Um, and those who don't have, you know, I would say under 5% of their assets in stocks. Maybe they have a few stocks that their grandparents bought them as a child. Um, but they are not, they are not beholden to the, they are, what did one, one, one person told me one, there was a, I went, I did a campaign recently uh, in Youngstown, Ohio, and there was a black guy who told me we were at McDonald's and he said to me, I never feel it when the stock market is on the rise, but I always feel it when it's on the decline. It's those kinds of people. Uh, let me ask you about the future because, sure, 
in so in the United States and in the UK, uh, support for more populist uh, national populist candidates like Trump or, or Brexit tends to skew older. Uh, no, not well, in Europe. They actually skew younger. I, I said the UK. I said oh, the sorry, UK. the UK. Yeah, my bad. Sorry. Uh, whereas uh, in France and in Israel, uh, you, you have the reverse, where younger voters are actually yeah, more likely Poland to. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know about Poland, but it, I'll take your word. Poland, for it. Italy, Spain—they're all much younger. They're usually between the ages of thirty-five and fifty. Yeah. So, what do you think it is that explains that difference? And then, uh, from the U.S. perspective, um, obviously, personally speaking for myself, uh, I would, in the short term, I would much rather have older people for me than younger people, just because I'm sorry, older people vote and younger people, they've got other things they (laughs) want to do with their lives, Um, you know, uh, um, but if you're trying to create a sustainable movement over the long term, uh, you kind of want to be able to reproduce yourself, right? That's important for a nation, uh, but it's also right. important for a political movement. So, I mean, obviously it's possible, if you look at these other countries, it's possible to have uh, these ideas appeal to young people uh, and for them to want to be a part of it. So, what I mean, why do you think that there is this difference between, say, continental Europe and the Anglosphere? Uh, and, you know, what, if anything... Uh, could change as far as that goes. So the big part of that in Europe is the fact that a lot of older national populist parties like the Swedish Dems, the Front National, uh, the Lega Nord were really compromised at the Freedom Party in Austria, Austria, Austria um, were compromised of old Nazis. And that is why older voters don't vote for them. Um, even though they have had rebrands, the old leaders have usually either died or retired or in many ways kicked out of the party. I mean, Marine Le Pen kicked her own father out of the party um, for things that he said. The Swedish Democrats um, uh, totally uh, kicked out everyone who was associated with Nazism, um, which is necessary and a very important step to take. Um, uh, and so that's why the younger voters never knew the Jean-Marie Le Pens of the world who, you know, ran for president on re- reviving the Algerian war and saying that gas chambers were a footnote of the, of the world war two, that doesn't help. Um, so they never knew that they know Marine Le Pen, who is open to gay marriage and is talking about issues of the EU, which is much more obviously important to the voters of the day. Um, so that is really why the voters of the AFD and Lega and uh, it's the national rally as now in France, they call it, and all of the other kids, Fielder's party and all the rest of them are younger. Um, and after, after all, was Swedish Democrats was created by five Gen Xers. I mean, or four Gen Xers it was re- rebranded by people in their late 20s, early 30s. Um, in America, I think a big part of it, and this is I just have an article about this on the Hill that's going to come out probably by the time this podcast is published. Um a big part of it is because Republicans have stupidly sat there and done two things. One, they completely set up. We're not dealing with the culture war anymore. Let the culture, you know, flail out. You know, we'll always have John Wayne. That's not an answer. Um, but more importantly, I think when it comes to education, as you said, you fear white liberals over over Hispanics surrounding your kids. And, you know, I think you're right to, to fear that. Um, but, Republicans forever have said, you know, if only we can reduce the population of, of public schools and inhibit and, and push people to go into charter schools and to parochial schools and religious schools and, and private schools um, and homeschooling, we're going to uh, make them more conservative without ever touching curriculum. They never, ever, ever thought, hmm, Maybe we shouldn't sit there and we should say, hey, maybe it's really not good that we're teaching children to hate this country and its history. They can complain about college forever and they can tell their kids not to go to college. But it's I mean, it goes right into the grammar school at this point now. It's when you're young that they sit there and put these ideas in your head. And so um, 
we are now at a point in this country where, if not a majority, a very large number of children do not have a public school to go to. And the right has absolutely no answer for parents about how to provide them an education that sits there and provides them with, you know, a, a, a version of history that doesn't sit there and say, you know, Christopher Columbus didn't spend his days chopping off the noses of Native Americans and that this was a the Disney version of Pocahontas before the white man got here and everything we ever did in this country was a vision of oppressing other people. We don't have that curriculum yet. Not a single school board in this country is sitting there and working on that yet. We don't have a positive enforcement of that. We keep sitting there and saying, no, let's start from neutral. And, and you know, the Demo- the left sits there and says, let's get from the uh, like the one yard line to make sure we have the easiest victory possible. We're like, no, we'll start from the center and see who wins the best fight. I think that y- if you want to start winning this this election, we or start winning the future. Rather, you need to start actually creating curriculum at the very le- at the school level that sits there and does positive reinforcement to the idea that it's good to be an American patriot and to love this country and that this country for all of its faults has far more great moments than bad moments. Um, and that is something that the right just once again, hasn't touched. So now what are we doing now? We're saying, saying, Oh, the 1619 project is bad. Let's start from where we were before then, which was still horrible. Um, I think that that's something that we very much should be looking forward to doing. Yeah, maybe, maybe we get. They want to start the the nineteen eighty project. Maybe <laughs> no, we should start the nine hundred BC project. I always say, <laughs> I I know, but we should. Like, I always sit there and say, I have I have a godson, and his older brother, who's like ten, came home from school one day, telling me how bad Christopher Columbus was. We are Italian. Christopher Columbus is a hero in this household. Like, just to quote Tony Soprano, and yeah. we. And I sat there and I made him watch Apocalypto and it was horrible for a 10 year old to watch. But I said, no, you're going to watch this because, you know, if you think the history of this world was everyone having a Woodstock rally until the white man showed up, you're wrong. Pre-Christian America was a horrible place to live where we had virgin sacrifice and tribal wars and people were living in the Stone Age. And yes, did the white, did the Europeans do everything right? No. But to to envision the world as this peace loving place until the white oppressors showed up, the white Christian oppressors is what they are ingraining these kids with. Slavery was a horrible institution that is we are better for never for not having this country. However, the history of slavery is not just white men oppressing black people. It is it is. Uh, Arabs were uh, were enslaving whites, were enslaving blacks, blacks were enslaving other blacks, natives were enslaving Native Americans. It, it happened everywhere. It is a curse of human nature, not an original sin of the United States. But that is what they teach in schools, is this is unique to the United States, and we are bad for having it. Not that the world, not that human nature was evil for creating it. So that is the problem. If you do not know how terrible the French Revolution was, and judging by the New York Times editors on Twitter who were saying the French Revolution led to the French Republic on Twitter like a couple months ago, if you do not know how horrible that was, why wouldn't you endorse a revolution and anarchy? Of course you would. It doesn't mean anything to you because you think that it led to, you know, you don't know about the black masses and the beheadings. You think that it led to like the Second American Republic. These people have no greater understanding of the history of the world. And I think that's what's important. I think teaching the horrors of history is what is fundamental because I, I, I have a very Hobbesian worldview. I do think that without the, the strict, you know, strict control of things, life is very dark and very brutal. And for most of the history of the world, it was very dark and very brutal. And that's what you need to teach. People think that prosperity and safety is, the, is, is fixed. That we're always going to have it, and that it's not—it's not the creation of amazing laws that date back from British history and gun rights and other things that sit there and protect and create prosperity. They think that it's going to happen absolutely no matter what, and all you have to do is listen to AOC talk, and you'll understand that. Yes. Well, uh, I, I probably ran over way over my time <laughs> ranting, yeah, but yeah, that's all right. That's all right. Yeah, I uh, so. During one of my quarantine projects has actually been to read uh, all of Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, uh, was, all yeah. 1,000 years of it, 
and uh, there's a lot of decline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot of decline. Um, yeah. One day we'll have that version of California, the the, the decline of California. Yeah, maybe 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 sooner sooner than later, right? Exactly. <laughs> yes. So, our guest today, Brian Gerdusky, uh, his book "They're Not Listening" available all over the place. Uh, co-authored with Harlan Hill. Brian, thank you very much for joining. Us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Urbane Cowboys.